continuing to celebrate a series of outstanding documentaries that were part of the San Francisco Green Film Festival in April. New films that are as brilliantly produced as they are critical to know about. Today we're looking at The Geopolitical Impact of Global Warming, a tough documentary showing us how climate change destabilizes a country and the world at large. It's called The Age of Consequences. That's our focus in this hour of Beyond Weather, the geopolitical impact of global warming, here today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. When we hear about climate change, we may think of harsher storms, flooding, or extreme drought. Those are the immediate consequences of weather on land and sea. But few have ever explained to us just how far-reaching the ripple effects go from there. Drought means people in hunger, large populations moving, social breakdowns, and possibly war. A new film is focused exactly on that interconnectedness of problems, causes and effects. It's called The Age of Consequences, and it is playing in film festivals all around the country right now. We are speaking with the filmmaker today in this episode of Beyond Weather, the geopolitical impact of global warming. All that and more coming up in just a minute here on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and this show is brought to you by Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. That's equalexchange.coop. And thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com.
And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Our focus in this hour is a new documentary called The Age of Consequences and Consequences it shows, in this case, of climate change in our episode of Beyond Weather, the geopolitical impact of global warming. And on the phone with me now is Jared Scott, the writer, director and producer of The Age of Consequences. He's joining me today from Brooklyn, New York. Jared, do I have you on the line? You do. How's it going, Helga? Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for making the time. The San Francisco Film Festival just ended in April, and I'm, I can only imagine with a movie that important that you are extremely busy planning other film festivals. So thanks again for making the time to be on the show today. We are usually really focused on the very positive. We call it the, the language of possibility on an organic conversation. And I must say that in almost eight years on the air, this was one of the toughest movies to watch. And yet we decided, of course, to include it because it's also one of the most important ones I've seen in a long, long time. Before we dive into the subject in detail, you have a long history of award-willing filmmaking. You've done Requiem for the American Dream, Noam Chomsky. You, you are fascinated, it's, it seems, or your themes are always social political topics. Why is that area the most fascinating to you? And what did you see with this one, uh, the global warming as the single super threat to society to dedicate your, your time and create a film out of that? Sure. My, my filmmaking journey, I mean, like most people's lives and professions, is partly accidental and partly intentional. Uh, I'd like to think it's more intentional, but I think that as my craft developed as a filmmaker and as a storyteller, I was simultaneously becoming more politically active, more interested in social, socio-political issues, trying to figure out how I could channel my uh, passion, my frustration, my desire to do something, because ultimately a lot of us are always trying to figure out what can we do? Mm -hmm. You know, what's the answer? And it just seemed to make sense to kind of have those two areas, you know, my, my desire to get involved with uh, the social issues and my filmmaking to eventually come to a point of confluence. And, you know, I think that really in the last six years, that's been my primary focus. And we, we've released a, a feature-length film Uh, I think every year since 2012, as well as doing a number of short films in between. So we've really just been kind of churning these out because I think when you're working on films about social issues, you have the feeling, especially with climate change, that there's no time to spare, <laughs> that you should have been done with it, you know, when you started, mm -hmm. that this should have been done before you even shot the first frame. So there's this constant, this constant pressure in addition to the film in addition to like the, the normal, the, the independent filmmaking pressures that come with making a project like this, but with the idea of like, we got to get this out. Sure. We got to get this out now. We have to have people see that this is, that there's a, because I think that you become swept up in the urgency of the issue that you're presenting. And I think that, you know, that's kind of a nice segue into this film. I mean, the reason why we, we set out to make this film is we really wanted to show people that, that climate change is happening now that, as the U.S. Department of Defense says, it poses immediate risk to national security. How, how did you find that topic, though? Global warming is the single super threat and threat that weaves together all the other threats. Um, what did you realize that you must make a movie about that? 
I was talking with uh, my fellow filmmakers after the People's Climate March, which was that giant uh, global march. We had about 400,000 people march here in New York in September 2014. And we had actually made a film called Disruption leading up to that that was released before the march to actually galvanize people to get out there, uh, to lay, ba like, lay bare the stakes of the problem um, and what you could do. And I think that coming out of that, we realized uh, that we were trying to activate what we would call our, what, what an organizer might call their, our active allies. So there's, a, there's something called the spectrum of allies, and I encourage your listeners to look it up. It's kind of a half pie chart that shows varying degrees of people's involvement. And I think that, you know, what we tried to do is look at this and say, okay, you know, we have our active allies, our passive allies, our neutral allies, our passive opponents, and our active opponents. Let's leave our active opponents alone, but how do we get everybody else to become more more involved? How do we get them to move, you know, one, one pie chart over to, to towards being more active? And, you know, so we stepped back and we said, great, we've made this film. It was the second climate change film I had made that really uh, spoke to, I think, the climate movement. And, you know, we talked about opposition to fossil fuels, as well as being proactive with things like divestment and political action. And we really, we really wanted to find a way to reach out to people that understood that there was a problem and would see that science and would see the political activism, but say, well, I just don't, you know, it still doesn't seem that much of an immediate threat to me. And maybe it's perhaps people that were, that we thought might be more conservative. You know, not everybody wants to go out and, 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 and hold a sign in March. And that's understandable. So how do we reach those people that, that don't seem like they're a part of that current climate choir? How do we reach people that, 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 you know, don't disregard climate change, but they just don't see how it impacts their daily lives. It still feels like an esoteric environmental issue that's out there that they can't quite grasp. And, you know, at some point it might, it might be an issue, but for right now it's more convenient not to think about it. And so I think we wanted to take that and say, well, hey, it's not just an environmental issue. It's a security issue. And it's not just going to happen later. It's happening now. And we, we found that the, the way to talk about this, showing the, the threat of climate change, uh, we realized that, that through our research that the military, the U.S. military, the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, was saying that climate change is a threat multiplier. Climate change is an, is an accelerant of instability or conflict. And we, when we kind of read these pull quotes from some of their bedrock uh, strategic documents, the Quadrennial Defense Review, the Climate Adaptation Roadmap, and, you know, there's been reports since 1990, all the way until, uh, you know, until just recently. And looking at that, we go, oh, well, here we have it. You know, here's an angle. Here's a perspective. Here's an apolitical institution whose job is to look at data, to look at facts, and to interpret this without that political coloring that you often see in this in the so-called climate debate. We really wanted to move past the sense of a debate. We wanted to move past the partisanship. We wanted to make it more accessible to people that, that are perhaps more in the middle. And, and this, this sense of security really seemed to encompass that. Because you see through the security lens that, that this, you know, whether it's, it's, it's at your doorstep or not, you know, we live in a, a wildly interconnected world. And things that happen abroad impact us here at home. Yeah, we want to shed light on that in, in more detail. But you are bringing up a really great point. Choosing the military as the spokesperson of the movie, more or less, 
uh, or entirely so, heavily at least, um, all these national security advisors and people that you got to speak about this issue in your movie, it makes it nonpartisan. It's not political. It's not based on people who demonstrate or march. It's not people on, uh, or based on people who say no to climate change still. Uh, it is it is the military and the military's job is to keep this country safe. So if the military identifies climate change as, as you said, a threat multiplier at least, and then you brilliantly show the connections in your movie, that is maybe the most reputable non-bias, non-partisan source or, or voice you could have included. Was that intentional? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think that you know, we we wanted we saw the military as an option to to not to not be cheerleaders for the military. I mean, we can get into you know how the caveats later on, but we saw it as a as a mechanism to diffuse the partisanship and as a lens. I mean, this is not this is a lens that other academics and experts uh, you know use and look at the idea that climate change is a you know is basically a there's a systems dynamic systems thinking approach to it how things are you know inter uh, interlapping or overlapping and and intertwined I mean you can look at the world economics world, world economic forums uh, global risk index and see a risk assessment that's very similar to what we talk about in the film um, you can look at this from from all sorts of angles from an economic one from a security one outside of the US and and you can you can see the same thing But yeah, for our, you know, because I'm an American-based filmmaker and, you know, we wanted to, to reach out to uh, people that, are, that live in the United States because we feel like we've kind of been dragging our feet on this issue. It diffuses the partisanship, but also it's a competent uh, institution. Whatever your thoughts are, because there's a lot to, you know, you don't want to get into too much foreign policy or what we should do on a military, you know, on a strategic level or the military-industrial complex or the military budget. These things, you know, push all that aside, but just see it as an institution that's competent. Sure. You know, where we, where we often, we have a, you know, an administration with a, an abysmal approval rating. Congress is often in the single digits. There's this fracturing within the U.S., a, a distrust for a lot of institutions. And, but the military seems to still rise above the fray, and, and we seem to respect it. And yeah, like I said, we felt that that was a great mechanism. Great. Because they're not supposed to come out there and be political. We yeah. want you to walk us through that, but um, we're speaking with Jared Scott, the writer, director, and producer of The Age of Consequences. That's also the website, theageofconsequences.com. He's joining me today from Brooklyn, New York, and this hour of an organic conversation beyond weather, the geopolitical impact of global warming. Jared, you touched on that just a minute ago. It started really all the way back. Jimmy Carter put solar panels on the White House. Ronald Reagan, within the first six weeks of his administration, I believe, took him down again. And yet with Ronald Reagan, if not with Carter, the idea of a changing climate was forming, if not at that point already understood, maybe obviously 40 years ago, not with the same exact understanding and depth of knowledge that we have now and the acceleration of, of climate change. But the awareness was there. And with that, as you said, military always on the on the front line of intelligence uh, was part of that. And we've seen ever since the late 70s, 80s, for sure, throughout the 90s, the interconnected nature of changing climate, of changing weather, and geopolitical instability. Can you walk us through that just on a couple of 
direct stories of where we have seen that, that climate change actually created so much instability that it caused social uproar and eventually war? Absolutely. You mentioned also us, us being aware of, you know, the planetary energy imbalance, you know, the idea of the greenhouse effect. I mean, this stuff goes way back. This, these, you know, these building blocks of how we've got to where we are today. Funny, one of the admirals joked with me um, off camera and said, you know, this is, this is, this is um, cutting edge 19th century uh, science. We are, we are in a position now where like the evidence keeps building, the evidence keeps mounting. And it's tough to always look back and pinpoint exactly where human interference has made something worse, right? You know, as we alter our climate, obviously we feel that in our weather. But when you have fundamentally altered the, chemi the chemical composition of the atmosphere, the military understands that. It's basic science. We now have, uh, you know, over 400 parts per million of CO2. We don't have 280 like, uh, like pre-industrial revolution levels. And that's the problem. That then puts an X factor out there. To what degree, that's obviously debatable. But what we look at is, actually, let me just step back and say, take the human interference out of it. We know you can look back, there's actually a great book called The Great Crisis. Historians call this, this period of turmoil, I believe in the, uh, in the 17th century, The Great Crisis. Climatologists call it the Little Ice Age. But, you know, you can see throughout time how climate, just as a factor, has always been involved with relating to other socio-political issues of the day. That's still the case. But, you know, obviously now we have put our fingerprint in there. You know, our signature now has been forever uh, marked with, with how it is that we've altered the chemical composition. So what we do in this film is we show how climate change is a factor with all these other factors. How, what I mean is other factors being, uh, you know, political instability, poor governance, unemployment. There's all these different socio-political factors that are at play. And then you see when climate change enters the picture, and that exacerbates other factors that are always there, water shortages, food shortages, desertification, um, a number of things. There's, with that comes migration. There's, um, there's movement. And, and all of that creates competition to resources or a lack thereof. All of these things interrelate. Now, climate change can be one of those issues. It can, it can be a spark. It can just be a, um, an issue that's interacting. But what we lay out in this film is something we call the nexus. And you see this web of all these different issues. And you see climate change there. And if climate change has always been in that web, and now, like I said, we have fundamentally altered the chemical composition, the chemical composition of the atmosphere, we have now made that more volatile, that climate change factor. Well, that's something that we should be really concerned, of, concerned about. And I think the military, in their risk assessment, they have to understand how that all fits together. They have to understand that factor and what that means in relation to these other factors, because all of that can create instability, it can create unrest, it can create conflict. All of that can breed failed states, it can breed terrorism, it can breed all you know, nuclear, heaven forbid, weapons of mass destruction. Can you can there you are, make it there. make it explicit of how that actually so for if a listener yeah, so, doesn't understand sure. that migration, drought creates migration, migration creates you know, people looking for jobs in other cities. Absolutely. You know, to be more specific, uh, and instead of just talking about this theoretically, in practice, we examine a few case studies in the film. So yes. we look at the case of Syria, and we look at how a drought forced people to, uh, to migrate into cities and, and what that means. So if climate change, there was a study that was done 
that that said that the by Siegel and Colin Kelly and a number of others out of Columbia saying that look that drought was two to three times worse because of human interference, and so we know that the drought was one of these factors that in a web of other factors had some migration elements. 1.5 million people left left rural areas, went to the cities. Um, we know that there was already migration coming from Iraq beforehand. So we had another couple million refugees there. Um, all of a sudden, you know, anyone can recognize this. You have a ton of people in the city. And then, like I said, there's all sorts of problems. There's Assad. There's, there's a lot of actors here. There's a lot of factors. Even in, even in the drought, there's, there's, there's bad, uh, you know, there's, there's well drilling, you know, water well drilling that you have to be aware of. There's all sorts of things. There's, you know, poor, poor mismanagement of that. Um, there's no subsidies for the farmers. So, I mean, you have to, there's obviously a lot of factors. But, but when you get out of the granular and you just look at these key ones that we focus on, because we tried to just pick out a few in the web, you basically have a drought, you have migration, you have unrest, you ultimately have conflict, and then you have this, this, this fix that we're in now. Now, that's not necessarily linear. We are just mapping out certain factors. As I said before, you have to think about this in a nonlinear way, how these things all interact, how they all agitate, how they all, you know, it's like a chemical reaction. You should think of it more like that. But that's one case study that we look at. We look at another case study of the Arab Spring writ large, and we focus on Egypt and the unrest there. Um, we look at Bangladesh. We look at the Sahel in Africa. And, and I encourage everyone to obviously check out the film, and, and you know, you'll know you see it much more clearly laid out than I could ever describe it, because that's the power of film, is that we're able to use graphics and, um, and really thoughtful commentary and, and really draw the stuff together for people and make it persuasive and accurate. We're speaking with Jared Scott again, director, writer, and producer of The Age of Consequences. Theageofconsequences.com is the website. A critical new documentary that touches on or depicts the geopolitical impact of global warming, how global warming and climate change is an accelerant of crisis if not one of the key sources of crisis, from drought and severe weather to migration to higher impact on cities to unemployment to hunger, social instability, all the way to recruitment of new terrorists uh, to war. Um, again, that documentary is called The Age of Consequences. Jared, stay on the line. We'll take a quick break to honor our underwriters, and we'll be right back with so much more. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And again, our topic is Beyond Weather, the Geopolitical Impact of Global Warming. This show is brought to you by Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org and Fry Vineyards America's first organic winery family owned and operated dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines award winning wines at frywine.com that's F-R-E-Y W-I-N-E dot com <laughs>
And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. The geopolitical impact of global warming is our focus in this hour beyond weather. We're speaking with Jared Scott, director, writer, and producer of The Age of Consequences that is making its way through film festivals throughout the country and maybe even abroad if you get a chance to see it. Theageofconsequences.com is the website for showings. Jared, we talked about how things are linked together, whether global warming or climate change is one of the key factors or a multiplier of existing issues that are part of a country and, and with that part of the world, because every country at this point through grain prices and so many other connections that you so brilliantly document in your film, the world is interconnected, of course, our problems are all of our problems. I'm, I'm really fascinated how you got military commanders to speak up about this. It's maybe the most explicit statement of everything that is not talked about publicly when it comes to climate change. And yet you got those top military people to, to speak about it. Was that difficult to win their trust or to make them speak? Do they want to talk about it? Given the urgency of your message, why is their voice not heard on classic media outlets? You know, it's a good question. And, and I don't, I think that, you know, I'd have to defer to my experience with interviewees in the film. And oftentimes I'm, I'm just kind of rehashing what it is they've told me, either publicly or privately. But, you know, the military, from my understanding, doesn't have a PR wing. They're not out there doing the Sunday morning talk shows. It's a command culture. And actually, if you go all the way to the top, it, it, it is it's civilian run. So the commander in chief of the armed, of the armed forces is now President Trump before President Obama and obviously the presidents before, before him. So you have, you know, the administration is ultimately going to be out there doing the, doing the press around what it is that they're doing that involves the military. It's rare that you see the Secretary of Navy giving some kind of uh, talk on a, uh, on a show. They're more of a missions-oriented yes. institution. So, now that, that said, I mean, obviously in a, in a political, in an ideological world where everything seems to be divided up, I mean, everything ultimately has some kind of political bent, but, but the, actual, the actual institution, and it's a big institution, I mean, it's giant, but the idea is that like, within there, there are some things that are supposed to, of course, be apolitical. Now, the way that we were able to get out to reach out to the Pentagon is, first and foremost, we kept the politicians out. We actually did interview some, and they were fantastic, but we didn't want to have, we didn't have, want to have any, anybody who served in, in Congress Any elected official. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for that clarification. Yes, no elected yeah. officials, but there were some, you know, national security yeah. advisors. And exactly. how did yeah, you win their trust? Well, you know, I think that, you know, I mean, we, we've been making films for a while. And so I think people can, can research us pretty quickly and see that we, you know, we've had films out, you know, on major outlets on Netflix and, uh, you know, PBS and all the rest. So it's, it's pretty, it's, you know, hopefully people will see that, you know, we're not, uh, we're not some, some kind of uh, I don't know, amateur outfit. At the same time, you're right. You, you have to, you, you start to get, this starts, this starts to become a safety in numbers. So, you know, you begin interviewing a few people and it's always hard to get those first interviews. And then once you start talking to more of the community and a lot of these people know each other, you then ask for, you know, introductions, you ask for people to reach out on your behalf. You know, people then can vet you. They said, oh, yeah, he, he did a great, honest interview with us. It's not some kind of gotcha journalism. And, you know, that just, it just takes a while. You just have to be patient for that. And, of course, you're working around people's schedules. Even when people want to be involved, it's hard to, you know, to pin someone down. 
But we eventually kind of got into the climate and security community and realized there's a whole lot of people that have been talking about this for a long time. You know, we just kind of came in with a flashlight and kind of put a spotlight on everybody. Yeah, that was uh, my question, if they actually were grateful that somebody finally would listen to them to a degree, you know, appropriate to the threat really at hand. That they Did you feel yeah. they, were, they were actually happy to talk because they feel this is really once, an issue? I think once, yeah, I think once trust is established, um, and that's really important, and we did our homework. I mean, that's the important thing. You always got to do your homework before you go and interview somebody, and sometimes there's preliminary interviews over the phone or, or in emails where you kind of have to show, hey, you know, I, I'm really interested in all these things that you've said. And I think people are like, wow, you really know what I've talked about. Like you read my book or you've, you've seen, those, seen the testimony or you've read the report. That's important. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think after, after we kind of started getting everybody in front of camera, yeah, they, they definitely want to open up. I and mean, I think people that spend their life doing things and are experts on this, they, they have a lot to say. And, you know, we... we There's a cinematic approach that we use in the film where we actually framed people uh, in large spaces. And our intention as filmmakers was to show the in, to have the integrity of the space match the integrity of the voice. And so there's these really wide shots. So take Sharon Burke, the former Undersecretary of Defense for Operational Energy, who's worked in, in, in both Republican and Democratic or sorry, in Republican and Democrat led administrations. She felt, you know, where that was a more of a cinematic choice, she felt like, God, I, this is how I often feel. You know, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of out there saying this, but not everyone's always listening. I'm kind of in that big room alone. But really, this stuff is, you know, we, we weren't really uncovering things that, that hadn't been covered. We, were more, we more or less assembled it all in one place and made it interesting to understand. I mean, oftentimes, these things are in, in really dense reports. They're, um, they're kind of boring but important moments. And, you know, they're, they're white papers usually. You know, going back to the idea of the DOD not being staffed with the most, uh, you know, the most privy uh, public relations, it's, it's really quite simple. And so, you know, other journalists have covered the, this, this angle, but we, we, we kind of came in there as filmmakers, and, of course, we organized it in a way that was, that was accurate and thoughtful. We tried not to over-sensationalize the material. You know, I think that the material is alarming as on its own, but we try not to, you know, try not to take that to another unnecessary level. You know, there's no, there's no palm trees getting ripped by 100, 100 mile per hour winds. There's no, you know, ice falling into the ocean. There's no fast paced, anxiety ridden drums to kind of beef up the music. We really try to be thoughtful in the presentation of this, but at the same time, understand that you know we have the power of this medium. To, to make it artful and arresting, to, to take images and sound, rhythmic and choices, and, and really try to, try to put something together that, that's entertaining. There's a digestibility to what it is that we've created as well that just makes it a little more palatable, I yes. think, to a viewer than, than what you often, you know, than kind of combing through reports. And sources. And you're saying there are other outlets that have covered this. And honestly, I've never seen a report to date where a major news outlet would say that the top commander of the of the military, even though our president is not convinced about global warming and has just reversed our, our energy approach, where that is covered that the top military officials are saying global warming is real and it's at least a multiplier and it is the single biggest threat 
uh, culminative to the stability of this country. So on, on that point, though, Secretary of Defense Mattis right now, I mean, he did, during his confirmation hearings, he did, um, although not spoken through written testimony uh, with the Senate's Armed uh, Services Committee, he did say that national security is, or sorry, that climate change is an issue of national security, that is that it is a, a national security risk, and, and you know you can go and look that up, and that, that was covered here and there. But you're right, you don't see it's that. It's just ever, not explicit. You know? I mean, it's not the military coming out and saying every single war in one way or another since the 70s, since we know about it, can be traced in one way or another to global warming being an accelerator of that conflict. It's not... Well, I think... Just well, I think to that point, I'd have to be careful. I, I, I don't. We didn't make that claim in the film. That's not something I would stand behind. That's uh, what you leave with, though, right? I mean, as a as um, a viewer, nineteen seventies. No, I wouldn't say. I think that I think that you have to look through. I think you can look at. Look, you could you could examine these conflicts around the world um, through the lens of you know. I think as as an interview we put it at the end of the serious section. Yes, it's Assad, and yes, it's ISIS, but it's also climate. Yes, and every time you look at it through the political lens of Assad and everything that 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 means, you're always going to be correct. And whenever you look at the mess that is ISIS, you're always going to be correct. But there's also this backdrop, which is climate, and that's always going to be there too. So it's not that that you know it's you you only zero in on the on the climate aspect. You just you treat that like you do all these other factors. Um, you know, it's it's. I think you have to be very careful and cautious. And I think actually, if you watch the film. You know, we give people the ammunition to not just think about this uh, in a way that, that makes sense, but also the ability to talk about it. It, it, it is understood, as so often uh, for more than 100 years, that soil, whether they called it climate change or drought or global warming, but the entire idea of people feeding themselves, uh, if that is compromised, that causes social unrest, which then can lead to all kinds of consequences. But that idea of, of not being able to feed yourself has been true maybe for thousands of years. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, and I think that that, that opens it up to a, to a larger discussion. In the historical time frame, the, through the historical lens, you can see, yes, you can you can look at cases. We mentioned a few in the film, like Angkor Wat, the Tong Dynasty, the Mayan civilization, where there were climatic shifts and climatic patterns that had an effect on those on those cultures. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I mentioned the Great Crisis, um, you know, where I think two-thirds of Europe was, was heavily affected there, and, and, and that impacted other social political dynamics. Yes. One army captain said to me, he's like, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning when I'm on the battlefield is I check the weather. So, yes, the weather, climate, always been an issue, but, you know, what we've done since since the Industrial Revolution, is we have altered the chemical composition. So yeah, I think now we're looking at it in the way we examine it in the film is through the idea that human now human interference is now a part of that. That's Jared Scott, writer, director, and producer of The Age of Consequences. That's also the website, theageofconsequences.com. In this hour of an organic conversation beyond weather, the geopolitical impact of global warming, I'm Helga Hilberg. We want to end on a high note, if we can, Jared. It's a tough film. It's important. I would ask you if you're hopeful and what are you wanting the reaction of the audience to be? What's the ultimate goal um, with or hope for the film? I'm always happy when there's a wide array of reactions. And I like, I like hearing, you know, I think when you put something out, in the, out into the world like this, that people then 
bring their own ideas, their own opinions, their own thoughts, and they and they have they have different ways of responding to it. Mm-hmm. You know, some good, some bad, some that agree with me, some that disagree. If people don't recognize there's a problem, that there's a problem now, and if we don't keep hammering home that there is a problem, then people might not be in, inclined to find a solution. So that was that was the thinking behind. Yes, this is a problem. Here's the here's the the thesis, the case studies. Here's the supporting evidence. And time and time again, we wanted to make it clear this was happening. This is a problem, and and I think that you know, for me, I don't walk around like I don't walk away. As I said, with 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 a sense of fatalism, I walk away with this idea that okay, we have to rethink how it is that we use and produce energy. We have to mitigate. We have to adapt, and we have to understand what consequence management means. Because in this film, we're not talking about anyone fixing it besides civil society. Just because we look at it with the military, they see it as a risk assessment. That's different than risk management. They have to understand how it all fits together, and they have to assess that risk. But it's ultimately up to us, to civil society, to manage that risk, to do something about it. And the more that we mitigate, the less that we adapt. The more that we mitigate and adapt, the less consequence manager we have to deal with. That's what really frightens me. So I hope that we go out there and we see, uh, we have a, a sense of mature hope, that we have a sobering optimism, but we go out there and we do everything that we can. And I think that people, and there's no, there's no single, there's no kind of silver bullet for that. I think depending on what people are doing and what they're already involved with and where they live, there's different things to do. But, you know, just like democracy, the idea of, of, of trying to, to move the needle on this issue, it's going to be a lifelong commitment to the process. You know, as, as the founding father said in this country, you know, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Same thing. With, with with climate change, it's not just this one thing. You know, you know, we need to work to get that to get that carbon fee. We need to work to get you know subsidies removed. We need to work to get you know uh, we need to accelerate this clean energy transition fast. Now we need to work to get legislation. We need to work to get people to actually address the problem politically. This is all important, and there's a number of things we can do. And I think that as a filmmaker, you know, it, it becomes too much of an after-school special. I say, hey, go out and do this one thing. But I do encourage people to watch the movie, of course, and to share the film. And you mentioned, yes, it's playing in festivals, still in some theaters here in the U.S., um, you know, with PBS internationally. So if people are around the world, they can, they can see where PBS has placed the film now globally. But here in the U.S., we're currently on iTunes. That's Jared Scott, again, writer, director, and producer of The Age of Consequences, theageofconsequences.com, who joined us today from Brooklyn, New York. Jared, good luck with your next film. I know more are to come. And thank you for this incredible contribution of The Age of Consequences, a really, really critical and timely, of course, a very timely uh, documentary. So good luck with that. And thanks, thanks again so for joining us today. Pleasure to have yep. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Again, that's Jared Scott, writer, director, and producer of The Age of Consequences. In this hour of an organic conversation beyond weather, the geopolitical impact of global warming. We're switching gears. Coming up is the consumer segment of what is in season right now from the produce dock in San Francisco. All that and more in just a minute. Stay tuned.
And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. We're staying with the topic of climate. Yes, the climate in this case, again, to produce food. Uh, much of the food in the U.S. comes from California, and we've gotten hit by a lot of rain this winter, finally ending, officially ending a six-year drought in the state, throughout the state. And with a snowpack of 160% over normal, we are in a good year. Food production has been heavily affected, and we will learn what that means to you and to your budget. Here's the update from the produce dock in San Francisco, what to buy, how to choose it, how to store it, and what to do with it. With Earl Herrick, here's What's in Season. And with me now, as always, is Earl Herrick, the voice of the San Francisco produce market and really Mr. Organic for the country as California produces so much of what we're eating throughout the nation. Earl, are you there? Hello, Helga. Hello, everybody. How is it going? <laughs> oh, man, it's, uh, it's, going, it's going fantastic. Uh, you know, it is so wonderful. I mean, all the seasons are great, but there is a special thing about spring, you know? Yep. Um, and May, and, and it's my birthday month. And uh, I mean, yeah. really, for for a food lover, not that it, it just turned out that way, but right now, for me, this is like I, I still get to reach into the past, and yet you have all these berries to make the transition just so easy. And and then you get a sense of what's coming, or it's like right. It's I mean, really, May it doesn't need to be there for me. The excitement of what's coming is already enough. Often the anticipation, so beautiful. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's it, that is it. it. There is a time in the air. There is that anticipation. Bees are buzzing. That's we're, right. You know, we're feeling even if it only gets up to sixty degrees, it feels really warm. You know, and and also being outside after a spring rain, there's yeah. hardly anything that can beat that. Nice. And cherimoyas are on the shelf, which are one yes. of my favorite tropicals <laughs> at hundred fifty dollars a pound or something crazy. So oh, expensive, so expensive. You know, but I was amazing. I was giving a I was giving a tour to uh, <laughs> a group of uh, produce managers from uh, an independent uh, chain of four four stores called Oliver's up the one-to-one corridor in the Marin and Sonoma. Anyway, we're going through there, and there's about 10 of them, and we go by the Cherimoyas, and they just stop, and they go, oh, here they are. Oh, we got to remember to buy these. I mean, just a fascination for something un- unusual. You can tell right away when you have a real produce geek when when they are just get totally fascinated with a piece of fruit, I love it. Yeah, and, and for I mean, many people have never had one. I had one, my first one, just a few years ago, and it's yeah. this bubbly-looking dragon fruit. <laughs> uh, you know, and and it's really pricey. I mean, a, a pound is usually whatever nine dollars, eight dollars, ten dollars retail. But uh, just to have that experience of this amazing, yeah, tropical um, chewing gum, like just oh, so good. But that's not the item of the week. We should do a show on. No. That actually, I would love to talk we, about Cherimoyas at one point. But what is it yes. for you right now? Well, we're we're going to be talking peaches, uh, and it's early. We're just going to talk about the early ones. Wow, four, four May. Cast. Okay, yeah, the first ones. Well, well, really, the first ones we had about a month ago. We were able to get some from Mexico and also some from the desert out of the Coachella Valley, 
And what is so cool about this about five years running now, the early crop is very limited, and it's only one or two varieties, but they're quite good. Now, I don't know if that's just that we have all this pent-up uh, expectation, but, you know, they're, they're a little more flowery. They're a little less intense because there's less... Uh, um, sunlight. and yeah. yeah, there's less sunlight. There's less sugar. Uh, less sweetness. Yeah. But I'll tell you, it has a really nice peachy flavor, and we had very good sizing this year. And some people are saying it's it's the rain that we get. Obviously, we're we're back in to a, a fairly replenished one year time. And of course, <laughs> we have a drought next year, and it's all back to that again. But we're feeling very good about the, the aquifers. And, <laughs> so when and when all, you all the runoff. when you saw, you don't know if it's the anticipation that makes them so good. You're saying maybe it's because we love peaches so much that when the first ones come out and they're you know they're good, but they're not great. We think they're amazing already. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. what you're saying. That so, is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> because May, I mean, how much sunlight? Uh, yeah, well, it's it is getting warmer in the in yeah. parts of the California and Central Valley for sure. We had mm-hmm. some 80, 90 degree days at this point already. So yeah. you're saying early, but surprisingly good still, really, even so yes. objectively. Yes, and also good sizing. Historically, uh, early Smaller. peaches from the desert are very small, mm-hmm. and these are very healthy size. They're very, very expensive, but. But a lot of that is, of course, supply and demand. The supply is very, very low, and the demand is, is very high. So the price is high, uh, but that is just what we've had. And we can look forward to a pretty darn good year. So when, if you buy one yeah. and it looks fine, it has color, and it looks you know intact and doesn't have blemishes, what do you do? You take them home and you put yeah. them on the counter or a fridge? Put them on the counter, put them on, on a cloth. So they still have a breathing space between the counter and the piece mm-hmm. piece of fruit. So the air still go, still goes through there, so it doesn't get stuck to the uh, yeah. to the counter. And just wait. Uh, you know, I would give it a day or two, and you can see you can see the background color change, deepen, get a richer yeah richer deeper look. So what you're looking for is a light yellow turn to deeper yellow. Or if it's a light green, it'll start turning yellow. And a little bit more softness to touch? Yes. Yeah, you want to put it in the palm of your hand because you want to just handle it with your fingertips because that's just too uneven. Mm -hmm. But if you put it in the palm of your hand and just give it that pressure, you know, wait for it to give a little bit. And early ones might, you know, might take two or three days. And um, also, when they're a little firm, they'll still give you good flavor. They'll, they'll just give you a little bit more if they ripen a little more. But they still have a good amount of sugar. Of course, there's other stone fruit around. There's yellow nectarines and all those. But I wanted to focus a little bit on peaches. Would you try those in the store? I mean, we always say ask your yeah. produce person to cut one open. And I'm doing that now, seriously, uh, religiously, yeah. with everything I buy. And they enjoy it. They, I mean, we both try it and say, what do you think? What do you think? So it has saved me money. There was, you know, produce that was okay, citrus, particularly some mercots that were good, but not amazing. And then I had a pixie that blew me away. So it's just so much more fun when you actually really buy it's you know we all work hard to for our money and if if you then get a produce item that just has that day where it's just per, or week where it's just out of the world mm, perfect yeah, oh yeah. man that's just you know, worth it worth the effort well, oh yeah one of the things that i preface or i include in that request for a sample is you know i'm ready to buy do you mind giving me a sample yeah, yeah exactly really, if it's good yeah. then yeah of course yeah, because they're ready to go, okay, this, this person's ready. And, and and there's nothing wrong with going, gosh, you know, I'm really disappointed. I, I don't think I can buy that. You know, they'll try it. They'll agree with you. 
So you never have to feel ashamed right, right. or, or you know, uh, needing to buy just because you've got a sample. The whole idea is you're making your decision upon the sample. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, it's like and, a test drive. Say, you want a test drive, you know, your car. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you know, I'll say a good produce person will go, oh, let me get you another one. I know there's, you know, I know, I, I know these are good. Yeah. And so, cool. you know, again... That nice. is one of the best things you can do in the department is to create that relationship. It's May yep. and there's already stone fruit in the form of peaches. That is just yes. fascinating. And they will get better and better as we're heading into June and July, of course. But yellow still peaches. good good quality already. Yellow peaches, check them out. Uh, Beginning of the long summer of peach. Yes. And what a rich summer it will be after this much rain during the winter. Uh, More information on earlsorganic.com. Check it out for produce updates and recipes and more. Thank you so much, Earl. Fun. May, and here we are into a full new summer crop harvest of all the excitement that's coming. We'll have you back next week. Something new every week. Fun. Thank you. Thank you. Can't wait. Take care. Yeah. Bye. And that wraps up a full hour of an organic conversation for this week. I'm Helge Helberg. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with another episode next week. And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thank you so much for listening. A big thank you also to our associate producer, Kristen Ponger. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Equal Exchange a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. And utterly offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Every garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Utterly, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, utterly.co. Also, Earl's Organic Produce a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? Anyone can buy directly from Earl's Organic at wholesale prices. The website is earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine without synthetic sulfites or other preservatives. Family-owned and operated since 1980. Fry Vineyards, Mendocino County award-winning wines. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. Lastly, thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N 
college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to anorganicconversation.com or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so you'll never miss an episode. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, find us on Facebook and Instagram at AnOrganicConversation and on Twitter at TalkOrganic. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Thank you.